The last 20 years have seen an explosion of interest and activity in space. Thanks to SpaceX's drastic lowering of the cost to launch, together with huge advancements in the miniaturization of technology, we are more reliant on space for our everyday lives than ever. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 states that all activities, even those by private companies, must be regulated and licensed by the country they hail from. In the U.S., this has turned into a hodgepodge of regulatory agencies, all with their hands in the mix. And some would say these agencies haven't been able to keep pace with modern demands. Today, I'll explain what the Federal Communications Commission is planning on doing to meet that demand. This much and everything else happening in the world of space. Welcome to the Undiscovered Country. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Bryant A.M. Baker. Today I'll be presenting the top five most important things happening in the world of space. Thank you so much for tuning in and being part of this space community. We're on the road to our first 100 subscribers, and I am so excited to have you on board. Let's get started. Number one. Breaking Defense just reported that a UN committee recently approved a US resolution calling states to stop testing of destructive debris-creating anti-satellite missile tests. A senior U.S. State Department official said the resolution received strong support from developing nations despite traditionally not being allied politically with the West. The vote at the U.N. First Committee, which is responsible for peace and security, was 154 in favor, 8 against, with 10 abstentions. Not surprisingly, Russia and China opposed the, res the resolution as they have for decades. The two nations have instead been pushing for a treaty to bar the placement of weapons on orbit, known as the Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space or the Treaty for the Use of Force Against Outer Space Objects or the PPWT. They've claimed that the U.S. plans on stationing weapons in space and wish to stop it from happening. The problem is that there's no proper definition of the word weapon in the proposed treaty. This is a huge problem when you're in an environment where everything is traveling at at least 17,000 miles per hour. The U.S. first put the anti-ASAT resolution on the table in September at a meeting of the U.N. Open-Ended Working Group on Reducing Space Threats. This occurred after Vice President Kamala Harris announced that the U.S. intended to unilaterally impose such a ban on itself in April. Since that time, nine countries have now made similar unilateral pledges. Canada, Canada in May... New Zealand in July, Japan and Germany in September, the United Kingdom, South Korea, Australia, and Switzerland all making the pledge last month. 
While these acceptance of this resolution is not necessarily legally binding, many hope that resolutions like this will help establish norms of behavior for military space activities. With enough time and adherence to such norms, they could eventually become legally binding in the future. Number two. Jeff Faust of Space News broke the news that Virgin Galactic will be working with two aerospace manufacturers to provide the major components of its next-generation suborbital space plane. Virgin Galactic announced on Wednesday that it reached agreements with Bell Textron and Car Carbon Aerospace, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, to produce major subassemblies of its Delta class of suborbital space planes which Virgin will then take those parts and assemble the total space plane. The companies did not disclose the value of the contracts, but Carbon Aerospace produces composite and metallic aerospace structures. They've contracted with Virgin to provide the fuselage and wings of the new Delta-class vehicles. Meanwhile, Bell Textron will produce the control surfaces as well as the feathering system that raises the tail booms for re-entry and lowers them again for landing. The chief executive of Virgin Galactic, Michael Colgazier, spoke on the announcement and said that the Delta-class spaceship are an evolution of our distinctive flight system designed for improved manufacturability, maintenance, and and flight rate capability. With the new contracts, and the early one with Aurora, he stated, we now have the primary suppliers to play in place to propel the production of our spaceline fleet at scale. Virgin Galactic envisions producing up to six Delta-class vehicles a year at the Arizona factory. The vehicles are set to begin revenue-generating payload flights as soon as late 2025 and private astronaut flights in 2026 if all goes according to plan. With the current Spaceship 2, the VSS Unity, um, not being able to fly more than once a month, the, the Delta-class vehicles, in contrast, are designed for weekly flights. The company said in August that delays in refurbishment of VMS Eve, its White Knight 2 plane, had further pushed back the resumption of commercial flights to the second quarter of 2023. Interestingly, contracting with these manufacturers is an attempt to diversify the supply chain for Virgin, a step in the opposite direction of SpaceX and its attempts to create so much of what they do in-house. Though this perhaps shouldn't be a huge surprise, as the companies and their goals are vastly different. Number three. An international team of researchers using the 500-meter aperture spherical telescope, or FAST, in China, has found that Stevens Quintet uh, five closely packed galaxies, is shrouded in an atomic gas cloud two million light years wide. That is a gas cloud about 20 times the size of the Milky Way galaxy. 
Shu Kong, an astronomer at the National Astronomical Observatories of the Chinese Academy of Sciences and lead author on the new research paper, said in a statement, this is the largest atomic gas structure ever found around a galaxy group. According to the researchers, the discovery presents a mystery and will require astronomers to rethink how gas behaves at the edges of galaxy groups. The scattered hydrogen in Stevens Quintet is a time capsule that can tell scientists about such events going back perhaps about a billion years. The cloud is a particularly surprising find because astronomers would have expected ultraviolet light to change the nature of the hydrogen in the cloud. Ultraviolet light ionizes the atoms in an atomic gas cloud, meaning they will gain or lose electrons and end up charged. But the gas observed in Stevens Quintet hasn't done that for some reason. The lack of ionization suggests that the gas could be left over from the time that galaxies were forming in that region. Far away from any stars, diffuse clouds of atomic hydrogen still exist on their own, which could make a case for them being byproducts of interactions that formed a galaxy. It is also possible that the clouds surrounding Stevens Quintet could have been released by an ancient crash between two of the galaxies. Number four. Good news recently came out about the health of the International Space Station. Or rather, good news, the ISS doesn't appear to be hurting the health of astronauts visiting the International Space Station. In a recent study published in Microbiome, a team of researchers led by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory conducted a five-year, first-of-its-kind study investigating the environmental profile of the ISS. The purpose of the study was to address the introduction and proliferation of potentially harmful microorganisms into the micro microbial communities of piloted spacecraft and how this could affect human health. Dr. Crystal Jang, who is a biologist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and a co-author on the study, stated that although our survey found several opportunistic mi microbes, we concluded that the ISS is a safe environment for the astronauts. We found that the microbiome of the ISS surfaces is stable and that most of the microbiome is associated with human skin. He further explained that overall, the ISS surface composition was extremely stable beyond a few small changes during our five-year study. It's a dynamic process, just like the human body. The ISS antimicrobial antimicrobial resistance gene profiles also were stable over time, with no differences over the span of the MT1 and MT2 studies. This means that the ISS microbiome doesn't have any new antibiotic-resistant genes, which is safer for the astronauts. While this study was conducted using samples returned to Earth from the ISS, NASA can observe microbiome microbes on the ISS in real time and is also looking into real-time microbial monitoring on future spacecraft as well. Number 5
In a speech at a Satellite Industry Association event, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel announced the creation of a new space bureau within the FCC. She later told the National Press Club that this reimagined bureau will support the United States leadership in the emerging space economy, promote long-term technical capacity to address satellite policies, and improve our coordination with other agencies on these issues. The FCC has long regulated communication infrastructure, including the radio spectrum, but the agency has recently taken on a much larger role in regulating satellites, including tasks like issuing licenses for new space internet services to companies like SpaceX and OneWeb, and writing rules dictating when out-of-service satellites must be removed from orbit. Current organizational structures have not kept pace with the explosion of interest in commercial space. From low-Earth orbit satellite constellations to new ways to manufacture and upgrade platforms, the FCC has been facing an exponential explosion in space-related commercial applications. The FCC says it received 64,000 applications for new satellites in the past two years alone, and commercial satellite launches increased by 20% in 2021. The FCC regulates the use of radio frequency spectrum, and thus most commercial satellite operators and all commercial satellite communications operators must get its approval before launch. She explained that you can't just keep doing things the old way and expect to be in the new. The changes I'm announcing today are not about taking on new responsibilities at the FCC. They're about performing our existing statutory responsibilities better and freeing up resources to help focus on our mission. In a statement, the FCC said that by separating satellite policy from the International Bureau, the agency acknowledges the role of satellite communications in advancing domestic communications policy and achieving U.S. broadband goals. The full proposal for a Space Bureau still needs to be worked out with Congress and the other FCC commissioners, so the office may not open anytime soon. Though, Rosenworcel explained the agency isn't taking on new responsibilities. The new office will, in fact, need new staff. Teresa Jones, the Senior Director of Policy at the Satellite Industry Association, stated that one of the biggest challenges that the FCC's Space Bureau is likely to face is the ability to onboard new staff at a rate that matches the unprecedented pace of growth in the commercial space sector. We're hopeful that the creation of the new Bureau will attract additional space talent to its workforce. But what do you think? Will this be enough to, to plug the gap between the expectation of the FCC and their output? I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for joining me today. Links to all of the stories that I talked about are in the description. Here again, the world of space, law, policy, and business is changing every day. If you missed what we happened yesterday, be sure to check out the video I did covering it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that we talked about today. I'll see you again next time.